Do you ever find yourself confused when it comes to health and fitness? Have you been searching relentlessly on the most effective ways to achieve your fitness-related goals, only to find yourself even more frustrated? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to learn from the best, shorten your learning curve, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. Welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Welcome back to the Minimum Effective Dose podcast. We have got a doozy for you today. And uh, Brett and I spent the last three months preparing this podcast. Okay, we spent about 30 seconds before we decided to hop on. But today we're going to be talking about mobility. We're going to talk about active mobility, passive mobility, hypermobility, and uh, motor control. And, and sort of how all of this stuff fits together because, uh, you know, mobility is so mobility work is so prevalent in the industry right now. Everyone talks about do this mobility and do this mobility drill. And it's definitely a hot topic. And even if you look at all of the assessments that are out there, whether they're table assessments or whatever, a lot of them are mobility assessments really. And um, if someone is really, really mobile and or hypermobile, what do you do with that information? So Brett, has that ever, uh, has that ever happened with you? Have you ever worked with a client where you've uh, maybe seen some, some issues with maybe some hypermobility or, um, have you seen scenarios where someone had really good passive mobility, but not good active mobility? Let's, let's hear it from the pro. Well, it's great to be on with you, Mike. Uh, and, and yes, the three minutes we did, uh, in prep is really got us, uh, dialed in for this, uh, for this podcast. So I've seen every combination of that. Uh, I've worked with people that have diagnosed Ehlers-Danlos. Uh, some three or grade three or four, uh, like pretty severe. Uh, I've, I've found varying degrees of hypermobility, um, even among some 30, 35 to 40 something year old males where, you know, you just start watching them move and do things. And, you know, just cause you can hyperextend your elbows doesn't mean you have hypermobility. You might have hyper uh, extra motion at a joint or two, but you don't have hypermobility. But when you start stacking multiple, and we'll talk about the bite and scale and Ehlers-Danlos and, and we'll, we'll go a little more in detail, but yes, I've seen every piece of that. Um, and, and so, and working with Phil Plisky and uh, some of the MLB uh, work that he's doing, what we're actually finding is more of the young athletes coming up with varying degrees. They're on this sliding scale of, of extra mobility. Um, and just because you have extra mobility or you pop a high score on a bite and doesn't mean you have Ehlers-Danlos and a connective tissue disorder, just means you have some extra mobility. But that is for a doctor to dive into and make sure that there's nothing else going on. We'll be hammering that point again as we move forward. And I've seen people that, um, yeah, that from a passive standpoint, they can stretch themselves silly. Uh, but then from an active standpoint, they look like a very stiff individual. So they have a they have a, a big discrepancy between active and passive. So it's I wish it was simple. Um, and you know, obviously we're F fans of the FMS and instructors, and I've been I've been in the room for screening hundreds of people, and there is a significant mobility bias built into, pardon me, the FMS. So when you look at the shoulder mobility, the active straight leg raise, uh, even when you look at hurdle step in line lunge deep squat. There's a mobility bias built into those screens. 
And if you look at us culturally here in the U.S., it fits. We tend to be, you know, lose some mobility and 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 be a, a stiffer, you know, as I traveled to various locations around the world and, and started expecting to see the Americanized screen, uh, I didn't saw more motor control issues, or I saw people that were, you know, actually checking the boxes on the mobility, but still showing some issues uh, in, in other areas of the screen. So um, you need to have a baseline. You know, there's just, there's this idea and we've, that's probably a recurring theme for everybody that's listening to the podcast, but, you know, just saying that you're doing mobility work. Well, okay. What's that mean? How are you defining that? How are you targeting that? What, what is your, your, what are you doing? <laughs> Cause that can mean different things to different folks. So yeah, I've seen all those yeah. variations. And, you know, I, I've seen, I've literally witnessed and had conversations with people that are like, I stretch every day and they're still immobile. Right. So clearly there's a disconnect, right? Just because you stretch every day doesn't mean that you're going to be successful in improving your overall movement competency or quality, right? You can go to the gym five days a week and still not get fit or get stronger because maybe you don't know what to do, or maybe you're not doing anything that is even worthwhile. So, but let's, let's, before we sort of uh, go off on crazy tangents, which we never do, but occasionally it does happen. Um, let's talk about, um, let's talk about passive mobility, because I think that's something that people don't understand the difference between passive and active. And, uh, and if I'm being brutally honest, um, early on in my career, neither did I. And, um, you know, one of the ways that I sort of taught myself how to understand the difference is passive is potential. And um, when you look at what passive mobility is, the simplest way to sort of visualize this is let's say you lay someone on their back and you can, you know, crank and stretch their hamstrings and, and obviously everything on the posterior chain, because it's not just the hamstring, but you can just see how far that leg will go back. Well, if they aren't in pain, they're going to feel a big stretch. That is uh, sort of their their potential, their passive uh, mobility, right? That's what they potentially could get to. But just because you can crank them, you know, a foot further than what they should be really doing doesn't mean that they own that position. So I always look at passive mobility as just, hey, this is like, uh, this is something that you want to work towards if, if, if you're asking that of your body, right? Because I don't think everybody needs to, you know, fully, fully optimize every single joint depending. It really depends on what they're asking of their bodies. But, um, I think there is sort of these minimums that we need to hit. And, uh, just because you can crank someone and stretch them doesn't actually mean that it's going to be good for them because you can actually use some PNF strategies, or you can do a bunch of different things to improve range of motion. But if you temporarily sort of shake the etch sketch and you put them through a range of motion that they do not own, and then you say, Hey, go ahead and sprint. Well, guess what? Now you may be uh, you may be asking for an issue because you've just put their body in a position that they're not they're not acclimated to, and then you tried to load it in a repetitive fashion. And gosh, that's when that's when bad things can happen because your tissue's not ready, your nervous system is not ready, and um, it, it's it's honestly I think it's quite foolish. And and used to see this a lot. I used to see all these guys, um, especially in the NFL, you'd see these guys like getting you know, strapped into a table with a seatbelt and people think they're doing injury prevention by stretching the friggin' hell out of them. And guess what? It actually made them worse. And people think, oh, just mobility is a good thing. Well, yes, mobility is a good thing, but if you can control it and you can implement it with a larger integrated pattern, that's when the good stuff is. But 
Um, you know, people need to understand the difference between passive and active mobility. And I don't think people really do. No, I'd agree. And I think that uh, we're, we're going to cover this again here in a minute, but to your example of uh, performing some stretches or doing something that increases mobility, you are now obligated to go back and give them the motor control, the ability to control that range of motion. The gap between your active and your passive um, is um, a problem. If if I can go you know, 100 degrees passively in that straight leg raise, um, and let's just real quick for, for folks that might um, just want a quick definition. Passive means I'm doing it to you. <laughs> Uh, so if Mike was laying on his back and I was stretching his right leg, Mike would be passive and I am active. I am moving that leg through that range of motion. So that passive uh, range of motion can be really important. You, you can run into people. Um, and if you look at it from an SFMA perspective, now you start trying to line up the boxes uh, where a true mobility restriction is consistent. It's going to be tight passively. It's going to be tight actively. And that that mobility thing will be consistent across uh, multiple ways that we look at it. Whereas active is what you can move. So for the FMS, that's our active straight leg raise. So yep. if I'm moving Mike's leg up into a, a hamstring stretch or a straight leg raise and he's passive, I'm doing the stretch. That's going to give us a, that passive range. You can do that at the neck. You can do it at the shoulder. You can do it at the hip in various ways. There's there's a bunch of different ways you can go active versus passive. Um, and then uh, then we do the FMS active straight leg raise and see what see what Mike can cover on his own. And then a lot of other stuff gets involved there: lumbopelvic control, uh, maintaining extension on the down leg, you know, thing, things of that nature. So um, that active versus passive um, is a powerful tool. Uh, it can really help you define whether something is a true mobility restriction. And then, so we talked about that as a kind of true mobility. It's tight passive. It's tight active. It's, it just doesn't change. It shows the same. That's a true mobility problem. Now that could be a joint extensibility disorder or uh, problem. That could be a tissue extensibility problem. Um, so there's, there's, we kind of, then we break it down further and find out, is it tissue? Is it joint? How do we need to address this specifically? Um, Active range of motion issues uh, or range of motion issues or mobility issues uh, that are inconsistent typically end up being motor control issues. So um, again, to this, to this point of I can take Mike 100 degrees into an, a passive straight leg raise, he's got about 50 degrees uh, actively. But then I change positions and I put him in a different position and now it's flipped. So we see this a lot with toe touch where they have, somebody can't touch their toes from standing, but they can seat it or vice versa. They can do it seated. They can't do it standing. So we look to see, is this consistent or is this inconsistent? If it's inconsistent, we start thinking motor control. If it's consistent, we start thinking joint or tissue extensibility. Um, so there, and if you have a baseline, and, and not just say, well, everybody needs to stretch and to a certain degree. Sure. But what are they stretching? Why are they stretching it? How are they stretching it? Because the, the, the motor control work that I'm going to give somebody that has a big difference between active and passive uh, is going to be 
very different from the person that is very consistent, has a joint extensibility issue. So kind of a brain dump there on you know active versus passive and the fact that there there is a way to use it as a very powerful tool to very quickly target uh, interventions uh, as needed. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think the key here is understanding that, well, first of all, you do need that baseline. So whether you're using the FMS or you use something else, you do need to get some sort of base level to see where they're at. So you can actually see if your interventions are making an appreciable change. But I, I think the key is, is if you do see someone that does have a true mobility restriction and you start to do, um, you know, you start to start off with a little bit of passive work um, and you improve the range of motion. And then, you know, the next step would be to, to slowly integrate positional stability or, you know, uh, get them in a range of motion where they have to start to earn that newfound range of motion. Right. And that's what we're really trying to do is bridge that gap between passive and active. And, um, and that's where load and it's going to be work happens, right? It's not like you can just try a little bit harder. Um, this is the art and science of changing movement. And, um, you know, just because you stretch the hell out of it and you keep on doing that, will you get a little bit of range of motion over time? Yeah. But again, the key is load. The key is to, to provide your, your body with enough stimulus that it sort of overrides the current software program and starts to reintroduce a new software program. And, and that is really the key when you're trying to uh, improve movement in general. We, we talked about this on a previous podcast, but anytime, and you said this earlier, anytime that you improve uh, passive mobility, you need to cement it. You need to load it to, to start to make an appreciable change and to give them control because um, just doing a bunch of stretching isn't going to really make a change. Um, and even if you look at a lot of the research on, you know, a lot of like isometric holds in these positions that will change movement, they're not just hanging out with this very lax daisical stretch. It's work, it's contract and relax. And they're getting, I mean, to really like to get to the point where you can do a true split, man, you know, that, that is work and, and, and it's not going to be comfortable, man. It's not like you're just going to fall into a split and be like, I feel magical. It's going to, it's not going to feel good. It's going to be work. And it's going to, you're going to talk about, you know, smoking your nervous system. If you've ever done some true uh, sort of contract, relax uh, mobility work where you're in an end range position and you're trying to work on that, it is talk about work and talk about a little bit of delayed onset muscle soreness the next couple of days. I mean, if you want to change something, you got to, it's going to take some effort, right? Um, so just, just to capitalize on that real quick, I remember a conversation with Pavel where, um, the flexibility work in, in the traditional Russian systems, the flexibility work was counted as a percentage of their strength training work because they were doing exactly what you were talking about. They were doing, um, uh, end range isometrics and, and doing, uh, uh, types of stretching that were not passive. It was, it was work and it was counted as part of their strength training volume. Yeah. And, and people don't do that, right? They just think it's stretching. And for some reason, I think people think stretching is easy. Like, yes, you can do like a, you can hold a pigeon stretch and you can get a little glute stretch and cool. It feels good. Like people do that all the time at the tail end of their workout, but I actually wouldn't, you, I, there's nothing wrong with doing a little bit of stretching at the end of a workout. If that's part of your cool down and that's what you like to do, actually, it's not a bad thing at all, right? Downregulate your nervous system, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think you're going to see large improvements in your overall movement quality by doing a very lackadaisical approach to, to stretching. I mean, it is work and I'm not the most mobile guy in the world, right? I'm really not. But um, when I started trying to get to the point where I could do, you know, loaded Cossack stretches and uh, really dropping down into that, and I remember you seeing me doing back in the day and you're like, man, you got work to do. And it took me forever. Mm -hmm. um, but when I could do it, 
I felt awesome, but it, it wasn't like a, Hey, let's just, you know, this is going to be done. This was like months of work and work and work and work. But uh, I will say this, once I got to that point, I was able to maintain it because it's, it's harder to get there, right? The journey of getting into a really, really sort of tough position, whether it's a pistol squat or an airborne lunge or a Cossack, the, the journey there is, is, is hard. But the cool thing is if you get there, keeping it is a little bit easier because you've already introduced that movement uh, to your, to your nervous system and to your body. And you just got to sort of maintain it. So maintaining the movement is a little bit easier than, you know, first sort of accessing that basic movement, but it's work, man. And um, <clears throat> if you've talked to anybody or spent any amount of time with, with people that we, we truly see as flexible, you know, dancers, gymnasts, I mean, they work at it. They, it is, it is, it is part of their, it is, they, they treat it like a deadlift, like a strength athlete would treat a deadlift or a bench or a squat. Like it is a vital part of, of their practice. Definitely. The um, just real quick, global versus isolated, classically trained athletic trainer. Um, I learned to break out the goniometer and go joint by joint and measure what was happening at uh, all of the major and minor sort of joints. So now in that rehab and what we started to realize in rehab is I could get you full range of motion at your knee. Uh, if that was the thing we were rehabbing and everything would look good on the table and you'd stand up and you wouldn't move so good. Uh, I'll, as I am apt to do, use myself as an example. Um, I have basically zero degrees of hip internal rotation. I am not going to have it because of the structural differences at my, at my hips. But if you laid me on a table and you were saying, oh, we're going to check all the range of motion, all your joints, um, you're going to, you're going to get to my hips and go, uh Oh, you know, we got, a, we got a lot of work to do and I'll stop you right there and, and tell you <laughs> that ain't going to, that ain't going to change. And I don't want you cranking on that, on that hip. But when you look at me move from a global standpoint, um, I move pretty well. And so that the isolated range of motions can lie to you as far as function goes. 100%. Now you, your body will basically handle one big restriction. So like for me, it's the hips. I don't have hip internal rotation. Some people think that's important. I get along fine without it, basically. Um, basically, until you don't. But, that's but <laughs> you add another restriction on there. You stiffen up my T-spine or you stiffen up my ankles. Now we got a problem because your body will figure it out. It, it handles that one big restriction. It charts the path around it in a way that doesn't cause problems. But now you add a second restriction or a third restriction onto there. Now you got problems because now there's no wheel room. You just got to compensate and shove through and you start causing problems. So global uh, should point us towards digging deeper, not we shouldn't use isolated to assume global. And so that's an important distinction when we look at it. Um, and just to swing back around to the kind of hypermobility end of things or the extra mobility, you know, end of things, this is something that we're seeing a little bit more. And, you know, I don't fully understand all the cultural and or um, societal factors uh, in that, but uh, we are seeing it more. 
And so knowing what a Byton scale is, knowing and understanding a little bit of uh, something like an Ehlers-Danlos, which is an actual connective tissue disorder, uh, which you, you know, again, that's in medical hands. Just because somebody shows up with this, you know, if, if you run a Byton, they're like a five out of nine and you're like, oh my gosh, hang on, <laughs> let, let a doctor handle that uh, and, and see if there's an actual connective tissue disorder. But when you find that person that has, and I, I kind of want to use this as a bridge in the conversation between the mobility conversation and the motor control conversation, because the hypermobile folks are your great example of that. Um, they love going to their end ranges because it's the only time they know where they are in, in space is when they actually do bottom out that joint and get some mechanoreception reception sort of uh, input. Um, problem is uh, they you typically lack control uh, in those greater ranges. So with those hypermobile folks, the best thing you can do is shorten the range of motion, slow them down. And by the way, they're going to hate it. They're not, you're not going to slow them down and make them operate in a shorter range of motion. And, and none of them are going to go, thank you so much. They're going to go, this stinks. I don't want to do this because they're used to using speed, finding their, their end, end range of motion. So for those hypermobile folks, slow them down, which means get away from kettlebell ballistics uh, for a while, slow them down, shorten up the range of motion, start giving them control. We want to think of control as a circle of influence. And for a lot of hypermobile folks, that circle of influence is going to be very small initially. The range of motion that they can use in control is going to be pretty small. We'll start there <laughs> and then slowly expand that circle uh, of influence, that circle of control, um, and, and give them more control over all of that range of motion. Uh, but that's a difficult thing to do and uh, getting somebody to slow down. And it highlights this idea that um, there is an aspect of motor control built into mobility um, that is that is hugely important. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm glad you made that distinction because, uh, you know, what we don't want people to do is go Google Byte Scale, start using it on everybody and start diagnosing people with connective tissue disorders, right? That's, <laughs> that's not what we're talking about, right? But, you know, as we sort of dig a little bit deeper into the, the, to the hypermobile conversation, um, I've had several occasions where people have come in and they've had, you know, issues that, to be brutally honest, they went to a couple of physical therapists and they couldn't figure out. And they're like, I stretch, I stretch all the time and, and it's not working. And then, you know, I run them through an assessment. I'm like, well, yeah, you should stretch. And you would, you would, you would think that I told them to never like drink fluids or something. Like they were just like, what? I shouldn't stretch. And I'm like, no, you shouldn't. Why? Because you already have this, this ginormous range of motion that you can't control. Why are you going to make it worse? And, uh, you know, it's very, it's, it's definitely an educational conversation with them because they think that they just need to stretch the hell out of it because everybody thinks that stretching is the magic answer to improve their, their movement quality or to, to manage injuries or to rehabilitate injuries. And in some cases, you know, range of motion, improving range of motion is a good thing, but in other cases it can actually make it worse. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I can, it's funny because I've literally done assessments on people and, you know, I'll, I'll run them through it and I'll be like, this is the side you had the injury on and like, yeah, yeah, but it's still not fixed. But, you know, you put them on like a table, you do like a Thomas test or a modified Thomas test. And like on their left side, they've got great hip extension 
and you know good extensibility of, of of the rec fem right we did a modified thomas we look at both and that side that was the injured side has crazy range of motion and then the other side uh is sort of maybe normal but the side with the excessive range of motion is the one that they're still battling issues with because all they've done is crank the hell out of it and they've never given them any control and it's just like it drives me bananas because it's like how 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 are people missing these things but it, that's that's another conversation but you know when it comes to training individuals that are hypermobile um i think the the thing that you said that was huge is just slow down i think uh using tempo and uh you know working on positional stability putting them in a position and doing isometrics or positional isometrics uh, paired with some good tempo with, with some good load is um it's going to be work right because there's going to be some time under tension but um it, speed can be another form of compensation, right? And we see it all the time in, in uh, athletes that jump, right? They go ahead and they do like a vertical leap and boom, boom, they all of a sudden fly through it. And, you know, their knees cave in and they're, they're you know, their they're, they're, uh, medial malleolus is rubbing the floor and um, it, it just doesn't look good, right? So, you know, when it comes to working with individuals that do have a true hypermobility issue, um, you got to slow them down. You got to do some activation work. And once you do that basic activation work, because a lot of the times they want to feel something. Right. So we can listen. I'm not saying put them in sideline clams and do two sets of 50 mini band clamshells where their, you know, glute meat is just destroyed. But, you know, a handful of activation drills just to get them to feel stuff. And then, boom, you need to put them into some sort of pattern where they can start to cement it. And that's when you can uh, you can incorporate tempo um, or you can incorporate, you know, positional isometrics or whatever. But that's where I tend to start with people. And it, it's amazing how much better they tend to feel because they, they feel like there's their bodies starting to get a little bit more organized and, and they feel like they can actually sort of trust the range of motion. And uh, this is where just quality strength training too, is just going to, it's going to be huge for them because they just can't control what they currently have. Definitely. And uh, this is, this is also where with uh, just to talk very quickly about expectations and feelings like the, that you said it very, very well, as far as what the student is, I want they're expecting to feel something. Well, that's not always the case. Um, like when we get somebody in a good sideline rib grab, where should I feel this? This is where I tell my students, I don't care about your feelings. I uh, I just <laughs> I want to I want to see what I want to see, and uh, it might feel different to you than it did for the last ten people that that did this. And so, but it is a huge expectation. And um, two of the things with stretching. Probably the biggest uh, mistake with stretching, in my uh, opinion, is too aggressive too soon. When was the last time you enjoyed being forced to do something? There was the one time in college for me, but it's, that's a completely different podcast. Um, but <laughs> I was going to say something. I was going to say something. No, no. But I'm trying to. I was. I'm trying to be a, Edit. a professional. Edit. Delete. I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, when, when people start this thing called stretching, they want to go to the max. They want to go until it's all they can take. Well, why back off, start at the beginning of the stretch, use your breathing, use some ankle circles, use some strategies to, to let your body know your brain and neurological system know, Hey, it's okay to be here. You know what your brain and neurological system learns from you shoving until it's so painful, it's all you can take. It learns, this is awful. 
I don't ever want to do this again. Why would it give you range of motion if you're going to torture it? So start at the beginning, nice and easy, and let your body give you mobility until it's time. So it's the roadhouse rules. Be nice until it's time to not be nice. So I want to get as much as I can out of being nice until it's time to not be nice. And typically that should be in the hands of a clinician or somebody guiding you through the process to let you know when it's time to not be nice. And by not be nice, I don't mean injurious. I mean, we're getting into some of those aggressive stretching techniques that you were talking about, because sometimes you do need a little extra horsepower to get through uh, that whatever mobility restriction we're, we're talking about. But again, going back to my hips as an example, I tried that before I knew the structure of my hips and earned some labral tears and, and problems because of that. So if the easy stuff doesn't work, I want to know why. It's not just that I'm overconfident, but when I fail to change somebody's movement, I want to know why. Because I feel pretty confident about being able to hop into a situation and change somebody's movement very effectively. When that doesn't work, I want to know why. Absolutely. And and I, I think just like strength is a skill, um, flexibility and, and control is a skill. And there's a path, right? Um, you know, we we say you're you're working with someone and you're you're putting them on a dead a deadlift program, you know. Um you, you can put them on a very, very simple, you know, five by five, three by three, two by two, like a, a strong first, uh, you know, symmetry type, you know, linear program, which is one of my favorite programs out there. But it's a it's a 10 week journey. Right. And I'm not saying flexibility needs to be a 10 week journey, but you need to know that there are stepping stones and there is a journey. Right. Um, and if you want to get more flexible, you need to dedicate more time to being flexible. It sounds silly. It's the same thing with strength, though. Right. I mean, shocker. <clears throat> But I think people assume that if they, you know, if they just, you know, do a little bit of foam rolling in a 20 second stretch, they're ready to go. And, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. You can spend 10 minutes of doing mobility work and you can rent some mobility to get through your workout, right? You can rent that for a little bit, but is it going to stick? And, 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 and I would argue that, um, the answer is no, it's not going to stick now over time. Will it improve a little bit? Yeah. But if you want to optimize your, your overall movement quality and get more flexible and, and be able to access positions that are a little bit harder in general, it's going to take work. And you're going to have to like literally dedicate a training session to flexibility. If you want to really make large jumps in, in, in the way that you move, it just, it simply takes time. And this is coming from someone who I'm, listen, I remember when I first got into training, like I was the guy that could lift a decent amount of weight poorly with, crap technique and awful mechanics. And, and it, it eventually nipped me in the butt and had a bunch of issues. But when I really had to overhaul kind of my movement stuff, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is going to take, like, this is going to take a lot of work. I remember when I first started trying to do pistols, what did I naturally do? I just tried to do a bunch of pistols. Um, and you wouldn't believe the amount of quad cramps and anterior tib cramps. And like, I just, I was, no, I eventually got there. Right. And uh, it, but it was a very, a very long and um, let's just say it wasn't the best route, right? I mean, I was banging into a lot of stuff. And, and if I understood mechanics a little bit better and, and even sort of the idea of progressing things, I would have been a lot more successful. But um, 
it takes time to be able to do pistols and bent presses and one arm, one leg pushups and, and all of these sort of higher level skills. Um, so like if you are trying to get to those points where you're doing a two hands anyhow, or you're doing a bent press, one arm, one leg pushup or pistols, like you're not going to jump right into that because not only is there these movement prerequisites, but there's also this sort of end range positional strength that you need. And that takes time to develop too, because like, you know, if you want to do a pistol, you have to get an end range knee flexion, end range hip flexion and maximize your ankle dorsiflexion. There's no other way you can do it. Sure. Can you do a bunch of heel wedges and get your Ollie shoes on and use a counterbalance and do it? Cool. Like that's, that's, but that's different, right? You're using tools and implements to get, to allow you to access a pattern, but you're not doing it via optimizing movement. You're just doing it. Uh, you're, it's kind of a little bit of a cheat code, right? I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you know, there's a difference between wearing an Ollie shoe, using a three inch heel lift with a wedge and doing a pistol squat, than doing a body weight pistol squat barefoot. Like they, they're very, very different exercises, right? They look the same. They're called the same, but boy, do they take one's a little bit harder. Let's just say that. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I think, uh, as as you start to cross the the divide from looking at movement kind of in isolation, whether it's active versus passive, uh, and then you you add in the hypermobility conversation, now you start talking about correcting that, which can be good strength training, motor control work, um, and or uh, a more aggressive stretching technique, in drain isometric things like that. When you cross that gap and you start saying, okay, now I want to use this. <laughs> I want to use this in something like a pistol. I want to use this in a good double bell jerk. I want, you know, there's there's all of these things that we can look at a, a good overhead squat. Let's say you're trying to get into Olympic lifting. And you if you're going to talk snatching, you're going to end up with overhead squatting. So what as we cross that divide from the assessment the the identification of active versus passive and hypermobile and we'd correct some mobility um there should be a gap and an accumulation phase uh before you go back to aggressive loading for my students when i identify something a mobility thing that needs to change i know i'm going to prioritize that for two to four weeks and training is going to back off a little bit during that time, we're going to go easier. That's not a great time to push for a PR. <laughs> when, yeah. when you're trying to change somebody's mobility, whether it's active, passive, motor control, whatever it is, bad time to push on a, a PR. You know, you want to have that as a back off and then an accumulation phase to bring control all the way through that range of motion, uh, all the way through that pattern. And you know, then you start talking about the patterning and, and the fact that all of this basically all of this comes down to neurological input mechanoreceptors baroreceptors em receptors chemoreceptors tempororeceptors um golgi tendon organs interfusal muscle fibers uh blardy blardy blar uh 25 cent words 25 cent words um there's a lot of different things in your system that is feeding information up to the bowl of gelatin that is helping you map yourself um, GPS satellites are not a bad analogy for how your body is getting this input from the body. Your brain is making decisions based on the input. 
Some of those decisions are, you don't get to move as much. <laughs> Some of the decisions are, yes, we will give you movement. Um, and your body's making that decision uh, based on a bunch of different input. And if you start losing uh, GPS satellites, like you can start lacking mobility because you just don't have the proprioception that you need. Yep. Um, decreased vestibular function, uh, visual issues. Uh, yeah, there's this, this can be a very deep conversation. Um, I don't know who we're going to have that conversation with, but because <laughs> I'm about as deep as I can go right now, but the, to, to kind of pull out to the cliche 30,000 foot view, we've talked very specifically about active versus passive and all these different things. Well, vestibular issues matter, visual issues matter, um, neurological issues matter. And the neurological optimizing neurological input, and we talked about this when we did the, uh, we talked about the foam roller. Foam roller is just a proprioceptive tool as far as I'm concerned. Um, for a lot of people that have uh, what's termed uh, SMA, sensory motor amnesia, can't feel it, can't move it, and uh, you forgot about it, um, that's sensory motor amnesia. Um, the, the foam roller can be a tremendous way to just start popping off all of those, all of those things are going to feed information into the, into the brain and the, and the body and increase that proprioceptive uptake. So I, I, I kind of wanted to finish with like a, a broad perspective, um, going beyond um, the, the, the isolated or even the global movements and say, Hey, this is, this is, we're, uh, talking about a lot of different things here, potentially being part of the part of the issue. You know, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, if there's sort of one other thing that I'll add to that is um, any time that you move a joint, uh, there's there's more than just stretching the tissue that's going on. Right. Um, you know, there's there's um, there's nerves involved, there's fascia involved. Um, uh, there's there's so many other things that are that are involved. And, uh, you know, to isolate or blame it on one thing or just say that it's one thing is a very short sighted way to look at movement because, um you know, anything can affect function. Right. And, and this is why it's the importance of like hydration is, is so damn important when it comes to, uh, you know, how fascia works and perfusion and, um, you know, how that tissue should sh uh, slide and glide. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it. And if you aren't, I'm not saying you have to understand every single aspect, but, um, when it comes to nutrition and hydration and sleep, man, if those, those, those things aren't really dialed in, and you're trying to in really optimize your overall movement, capacity, competency, function, whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, you need to do those necessary fundamental things prior to, because, um, you know, when you, when you move a joint, it's not just this very simple thing. There are so many things at play, like you said, all these various types of receptors and, um, you know, how your food is going to input, you know, how you function, whether you have a sensitivity. I mean, there's a lot going on. And I'm not saying we have to go down these crazy rabbit holes, but um, while some of this stuff can seem simple, the body's pretty complex. And and while we don't, while we do know a lot, there's a lot that we don't know, right? And the, the body is a is a pretty amazing thing. But um, well, this is fear, why it's important. Fear to guarding, uh, fear yeah. guarding expectations. I mean, you want to go yeah. into that kind of psychosocial realm of things. Um, certainly, post injury, uh, you can. Oh, yeah. You can stiffen up and lose lose range of motion because you're fearful of of moving the the joint and you have to regain confidence. Um, yeah. And and it's it, yeah now we're into that psychosocial realm of things. So yeah, it's 
yeah, um, pull, pulling out to a, a broader perspective and saying, this is something that can be very integrated, but have a baseline, have something that guides you and, and, and gives you, don't just guess. Well, I found they were tight and hip internal rotation. Okay. Why? Yeah. And can it be changed? <laughs> and if you don't know how to assess and you don't understand, I'm not saying you have to be a clinician and understand the difference between sort of a, a soft or a hard end feel and, and get people on tables, but um, knowing when to, you know, when you're banging into stuff and when you're not banging into stuff is pretty damn important. But um, this actually gets me, gets me thinking, maybe we should do a talk on some, uh, some simple return to play strategies like ACL and lower extremity issues, because um, I, I think a lot of people miss uh, important parts of that. And uh, I always tell people when they come in and uh, when they work with me, I said, we're not just rehabbing the knee, we're rehabbing the athlete. And, uh, and, and what I mean by that is there's, there's so many components. It's not just a, like, I want my knee to be stronger, which I don't even know what that means, but um, there's several layers of the sort of rehab process. And it's not just about getting someone stronger and measuring their hamstring and their quad strength. So maybe that'll be a, a talk for another day, but um, Hey, Brett, you're, you're pretty smart. You, you know, some stuff, even though you use some big words and all I could think of is what's that Baxter, you know, I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> I love it. Um, Anywho, what's that? You ate a whole wheel of cheese? I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. Um, if you don't know what movie that's from, you're not coming to the next event. I don't even thing, know what that means. All right, listen. Any uh, anything else you want to add here, Brett? No, I I, I think you know uh, again, kind of a, a good conversation. Uh, I like finishing high level, just kind of pulling back and and looking at, at a variety of things. Uh, but but you know we we have these baselines and ideas that guide us and give us uh, maybe a different perspective uh, from just looking at isolated joint range of motion. And again, I was trained that way. Um, but then as I started to work with Gray and I started to kind of pull back and look at, oh, there's this global idea of function and how do all of these different pieces and parts play together? Uh, there's, it, it's an onion. It's uh, things that have it's layers. That... <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what else has theirs parfaits everybody loves parfaits <laughs> anyways thank you guys so much for listening um as we get deeper into this podcast you're going to realize that brett and i are just children that happen to know a little bit about training but um thank you so much for listening um if you found this interesting or just somewhat humorous maybe share it with your friends and uh give us a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to so uh thank you so much and we will see you on the next episode thanks mike thanks everybody hey friends thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed this podcast we're going to ask you for a favor please leave us some positive reviews be sure to subscribe and share with your friends family and colleagues thanks again for listening to the minimum effective dose podcast